He is so worthy. He is worthy. Please make sure you have a handout in front of you. I'm going to give you enough notes that you're going to not try to take them on your own. You can write further on this, and you can also write on your song sheet as thoroughly as you want to take notes. But if you don't have one of these, can you raise your hand? We'll get one to you. Okay. Um, there's an extra one Patty has, right? Do you have an extra one, Patty? Reuben, uh, Carl, can you give an extra one over here, okay? Oh, okay, here we go. They're coming, they're flying through. Mary, do you need one now? Okay, all right. Well, now I've left my Bible over there. Reuben, can you run over here with my, because now I'm, I'm stuck to this phone machine. We're going to turn to John chapter 8. Everyone, please turn to John chapter 8. We're going to look back at chapter 7 briefly, but we're going to technically spend most of our time in John 8. Thanks, babe. John 8. You may have a Bible whose footnote said that this wasn't in some of the original manuscripts. I studied up on that. It was in other original manuscripts, and they say that it did really happen, and it did make the canon. So that's good enough for us, right? Yeah. The Word of God, it's all inspired, it's all anointed. Lord, we receive your anointing as we read your Word. Would you speak to us today in Jesus' name? Okay, John 8, starting in verse... Actually, let's look at verse 53 of John 7. He'd been talking... There had been some talk with the Pharisees there. And it says in verse 53, Everyone went to his own house... But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Man, how many of you know that sometimes we are talking with people and it's getting heated and it's not comfortable and they all go to their homes and go to bed and we go to prayer. So that's what Jesus did. They went to their homes and he went to the Mount of Olives to pray. And he needed that because he would be facing another test by the Pharisees and scribes just the next day. So he went to the Mount of Olives and early in the morning, verse 2, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So he spent the night in prayer. He comes early to the morning, in the morning to the temple. He only comes into the very outermost court. The court, uh, the Herod's court had the outermost court was for the Gentiles and the women and the children, and men that were not priests. The next court were for men that were priests but not functioning in their priestly duty right then. The following court was for the priests in their priestly duty. That's what we call the holy place. The most holy place is where the chief priest went once a year. So in the most outermost court, that's where the women, that's the only place we women could go. That's where the Gentiles could go. So Jesus actually was not a priest, and he was limited how far he could go into the temple. So here we see in verse 2, he came into the temple and all the people came to him. That means men, women, children came to him. That's one reason why we know that's where he was. He sat down, as rabbis do, and began to teach them. And then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. Here's another proof that he's in the outer court because they bring a woman right in front of him. They wouldn't have brought a woman into any of the other courts. When they had set him in the midst, that means in the midst of all those people that he was teaching, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They were testing him. They didn't really care so much about the woman. They cared about trapping Jesus. 
So it says that in the next verse, this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. There's an implication here. He who is without sin, this sin, throw the stone first. And some people believe what he was writing in the dust were the names of the women they had been with. It's speculation, but it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Again, he, sto he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now he's continuing his list, possibly. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So she's still standing in the midst of the people. The ones that had accused her left. The people are still there that Jesus had been teaching. And when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. In Greek, this means he did not notice the others around. He focused only on one person. He had eyes for that woman alone. She got all of his attention. So when he saw no one but her, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And again, an implication is don't sin in this area anymore. And then verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. This is the second time he's declaring himself to be God, really. I am that I am. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And he's saying that to all of them. Notice in verse 12, he spoke to them, the whole people that were still all around there. He goes right back to teaching the people after he has rescued her from being stoned. Okay, so now let's talk about it. Verse 3 says, a woman caught in adultery. Literally, it says, a woman taken with shame upon her. So that's significant for us because we're going to look at issues of shame today. To stand before this group of condemning religious men added to the shame she felt from her own exposure and sin. She was humiliated, publicly criticized, and treated with contempt. So in verse 6, Jesus bent down to write on the ground, and by doing that, his writing down took the attention off the woman. Now they're all looking at, here, at him. And that's significant because he was covering her and protecting her. It was almost as if he said, don't look at her, look at me. Let me have your attention, give her a break. So he's covering and protecting her just as he does with us. He doesn't deal with our sin as the Pharisees did with hers. He doesn't expose it. He doesn't condemn it. He died for it. Shame is not God's intention for his people. It's not the birthright we were born into. We're born into a birthright of glory. We're going to look at that later on. So Jesus saw that they were after rightness, not righteousness. He concluded their questioning by saying, You who are without sin, you throw the first stone. Jesus didn't shame them. He just reminded them that they were not innocent. And then in verse 8, he stooped down to write again on the ground. 
Verse 10, he raised himself up, saw no one but the woman. She had his full attention. And he spoke directly to her with respect. He says, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Remember what Jesus called his mother in John chapter 2? Woman, what does that have to do with me? It's a, it's a term of endearment. It's a term of respect. And so in the midst of her shame, he is respecting her. He's honoring her, calling her by a, a very special name, woman. And then verse, look, ver, I'm sorry, look at verse 11. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So he pardoned her. He didn't save and forgive her so that she could continue sinning. He said, don't sin anymore. And the same is for us. He saved us. We're born again of the Spirit of God, not, not so that we can keep sinning, trusting that grace will cover. We want to walk in purity and holiness and righteousness. He said to her, go and sin no more. And, and what he was saying is, go free of your guilt, free of your condemnation, free of your shame and don't sin further. And then in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. I am God. I can forgive sin. I can release people from their shame. That's all part of his divinity. He clearly distinguishes between his light and darkness. Darkness in that verse means evil and moral depravity. And so he says, I, let, let, let me just read it. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, sin, moral depravity, but have the light of life. So he kind of brings closure to that whole picture with the woman. All right, let's talk about shame. Shame is one of the most common reasons believers live defeated and powerless lives. It's widespread in the body of Christ. It causes us to question God's acceptance, His forgiveness and love, and because it's debilitating, shame is a favorite tool of the enemy. So we're going to look at seven characteristics of shame. There are many more. I just put down seven here. See if it has a place in your life or in the life of someone you love. Maybe one of your children, maybe one of your grandchildren. The Lord may use you to pray effectively for that person or even to minister to them using some of these notes. So we're listening today for ourselves and for those that we minister to or disciple. Seven characteristics of shame. The first one, negative self-image, self-pity, and self-reproach. Number two, performance conscious. Three, people-pleaser and need to be needed. Four, lacking personal boundaries and ignoring personal needs. Five, can't bear criticism. When someone says you made a mistake, you hear you are a mistake. Have difficulty trusting so you control. Possessive in relationships and fear abandonment. So what causes shame? Well, it can be caused by any comparison. I don't think I put that in your notes. But any kind of comparison where you feel less than, less loved, less attractive, less talented, less appreciated. You measure yourself by your siblings, by your friends, by others in the church, and you feel less than. That can give an open door to shame for the enemy. 
It's often caused by a sense of guilt, embarrassment, or disgrace. Maybe you were called a name when you were in school that caused shame to come upon you, and you haven't been able to release that shame. It's had a stranglehold. I was called a name when I was on a basketball team that it took me 10 years to get rid of that name. I lived under the shame of it. Authority figures don't realize the power that they have. And if you've been shamed by an authority figure, it, then it puts you in a position where you need to forgive that person and release the shame, cancel the shame. Shame is actually listed as one of the abuses. When you look at abuses, shame is one of them. So don't ever say shame on me and shame on you because those are word curses. Don't put that on yourself. Don't put it on anyone else. Shame is caused by personal sin. It can be one devastating moment where you gave in to sin that you embarrassed for the rest of your life or for many years. It can be a lifestyle. It can be another sin against you, like abandonment, abuse, or betrayal. If we retain unhealed wounds in our souls, then shame can become our identity. Shame can be caused by hurtful words said seriously to someone or about someone or even in jest. A nickname given to somebody can cause them shame that they carry for many years. It can be caused by unmet needs because we all have natural needs for acceptance, affirmation, and affection. And if those needs are not met, we may feel shame that no one cares for us. Another cause is a lack of parental blessing. We're all born with a need for a parental blessing. And that includes affection, discipline, proper discipline, affirmation, quality time, and a close relationship between parent and child. When parents fail to bless their children, then shame will fill the vacuum and they will live out of that shame. So there are a number of verses in the Bible about shame. I've just listed three and I'm going to read them to you. These are, these are good. Isaiah 54, 4 is extra good. Listen how many times shame is mentioned. God says, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced. That's a synonym for shame. You will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. The Lord wants us to forget the shame of our youth, but we have to resolve it first. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to forget about that. We need to bring it to the cross, forgive the people involved, receive forgiveness ourselves, and then walk free of the shame. Joel 2 verse 26 says, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people will never be put to shame. God never intends shame for his people. 1 Peter 2 6 says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. I was uh, praying with a, an elderly lady not too long ago, and she began to tell me of the shame she's carried all of her life uh, because she was the least favorite of the two daughters in the family. And so she carried this shame that her parents really didn't want her. They really didn't love her. She never could really measure up. And she sat there as an elderly woman and cried and said, I've walked under the, the burden of this all of my life. You know, none of us know what, what each other carry. 
Back in 19, I guess it was 96, 95, Ruben and I were part of a small team from Israel that went to Auschwitz-Birkenau in Poland to walk through the death camps and to pray for what happened during the Holocaust. And 130 Germans met us there, and they were German Christians, and they were burdened by the weight of the curse on Germany. They said, we have not have had a move in Germany for 50 years because of what we did to the Jews. Our nation is cursed. Our people don't know the Lord. And we need, we were a team of six, and they said, we need to be able to apologize to the Lord in the place where we killed the Jews and apologize to you who are Jewish or represent, uh, represent the Israelis. Four were Jewish, two I'm one of the two, we're representing the Israelis as Jewish people. And so every day we fasted for eight days, we walked through the camps and we prayed and we cried and we took communion and we pleaded the blood of Jesus that speaks louder than the blood of Abel. Uh, we prayed healing and release to the Germans that had carried this burden for 50 years. One came up to me and she said, I'm 52 years old. My father was an SS officer. He left my mother when I was two, and I have lived all my life under the shame of what our nation and our people did to your people. Will you forgive me? And we had, uh, we had amazing conversations like that. The last day that we were there was actually the 50th anniversary of Auschwitz-Birkenau being set free by the Allied forces. And was it 400 or 800 something Israelis, students that came over from Israel. They do that every year. There are uh, hundreds of students that come from Israel to walk through because they want to say, this, we're not going to let this happen again. That's why they don't want to let it happen again right now. We don't want to be annihilated again. And so um, in that group, there was, uh, they, had, um, they had older men or older women that were their sponsors, their chaperones. And one of our German ladies went up to one of the older men and said, would you please forgive me for what I did, what my people did to your people 50 years ago? And he said, lady, you are 50 years too late. I was in this death camp as a young teenager. I had to shovel the bodies of my people into those crematoriums. He said, I don't want to talk to you. I'm not forgiving anybody. I'm angry about this. And she got on her knees and sobbed and pleaded with him and said, please forgive me. Please forgive us. Please. We, I'm just begging you, please forgive us. And he finally lifted her up and he said, I do forgive. I forgive. I'll let it go. I've carried this 50 years. I'm letting it go. And what was really precious that evening, every evening we gather together in a in a Pentecostal church and we shared with each other what did we experience throughout the day. And that night, she got up and shared about this encounter with the, one of the chaperone guys. And another German person stood up and said, I went to the same one. And I said to him, would you please forgive me for what our people did to your people? And he said, I have, I just forgave. Someone else just asked me that, I just forgave. We had another situation that 
um, going through the death camps. If you haven't been there, they've turned Auschwitz into sort of a museum and they have pictures of all the, mi the millions of people that they slaughtered there. And it's not just the Jews, it's the Poles, it's the homosexuals, all kinds of people that they killed there. And they just have pictures of them all like little mug shots. And then they have big pictures of, of different uh, scenes of the slaughtering, of hangings, of shootings, of, of whatever. So I, I was walking into, you know, we all kind of divided up and just prayed. So I walked into one of these barracks where they had held people and was looking at the pictures and just praying and crying as we all did. You couldn't help but do that. And, um, and a German lady that was part of our team had kind of come in there as well. And then from another side of the barrack came in a lady that was, um, was German but was part of the SS German side, but she was just coming through experiencing it. And she was looking at one of the pictures and the other lady came over to her and said, see that boy right there? That's a family member of mine. They had a gun pointed at him. And she said, that's my family member. And the other lady said, the one pointing the gun is my father. And they sat down together, hugged each other, and cried together, forgave each other, released it. I mean, it was such an amazing week of forgiveness and release of shame and guilt. That's what the Lord wants for all of us, to be free of shame and guilt. The blood of Jesus is enough for all of that. Okay, let's look at some of shame's lies and God's truth. Shame says you're defiled, you're tarnished and dirty, but Jesus washes us with his blood with, which cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Shame says don't tell anyone your secret sin and failures. But James 5, 16 says confess your trespasses one to another. Pray for each other that you may be healed. Shame says you're worthless. Yet God says, in spite of our sin, he says, run to me and I'll cover you. Isaiah 43, 1 says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. Shame says you can't and you never will. You're a failure. Philippians 4, 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus broke the curse of failure on the cross. <coughs> Shame says there's no recovery for you. But John, uh, God says in Jeremiah 30, verse 17, I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds. He will give us a future and a hope, according to Jeremiah 29, 11. You know, we could spend a lot of time just meditating on each one of these. And I, I pray that if this is something relevant for you, that you'll take time to do this later on. You may say, God will never forgive what I've done. Or he may forgive me, but he'll never feel the same about me again. Perhaps you've done things that have changed your perception of who you are. When I was in high school, I witnessed to the, our head drug addict. He and I became friends because I carried a Bible, and he had the wildest hairstyle and the weirdest clothes, and he would go outside and smoke dope. We became friends because he kept bothering me. And so, you know, you just return love, right? And you just keep sharing Jesus. 
But a year after we graduated, we both went to the graduation of the class beneath us, and I saw him there, and he said, hey, you still believe in Jesus? I said, yeah, I still do. You still believe that Bible's true? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, then I want to come talk to you. And he got saved that summer. He went on to become a youth leader. He was serving the Lord strongly. I went to the mission field. I didn't hear from him for many years. And then he called me one day, long distance, and he said, I just wanted to tell you that I have not been walking with the Lord because he called me to be an intercessor and I could not do that. I refused to do that. And now I've walked for a number of years distant from God. I don't feel his presence. I don't hear his voice. The word of God doesn't say anything to me. I know I'm in sin. I'm in rebellion. And I have been repenting and asking the Lord to forgive me. And I believe he is forgiving me but I don't believe he'll ever feel the same about me again. He'll never trust me again. I'll never have a close relationship with him. If I can just get to heaven, I'll be happy with that at this point. So I counseled him along these lines, as you see here. We've done things that change our perception of who we are. We've done things we don't think God will forgive or that he won't feel the same about us later on. And yet God's love far outweighs the pain in our inner man, his blood is far more powerful than our sin and our rebellion. His love and forgiveness frees us from shame. And because our sin and failures are under the blood of Jesus, we can have a testimony like this. And I wrote it out for you because some of you may want to read this in your own time. <clears throat> I've done horrible things in my past. I can bring up memories. I heard a pastor say something like this once, and it was so freeing to me because he just, he didn't stand up and, and share all of his areas of sin. He just said, I've done horrible things in my past. I can bring up the memories, but it's only past tense. It's not present today because I've been cleansed. My past does not affect how I see God, myself, or others. God is not shaming me. He's forgiving. He has forgiven me, and there's no record of my sin in heaven. I met with a, another senior adult some years ago who said to me, I've been married and divorced numerous times. I don't want anyone to know. I live under a cloud of shame. I'm afraid even to come to church. I'm afraid someone will find out that I have been married and divorced that many times. I'm such a failure. And when I shared with her about the power of the blood of Jesus, that it cleanses from all sin, I prayed with her for the, the healing of the wounds in her soul that she had received from all the different rejections and from all the words that have been spoken, the physical abuse, the verbal abuse. We prayed together. She left with her head held high. And she said later, I walk with no shame. I am set free in the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The next verse saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing praise to you. So verse 11 in the Amplified Version says, For both he who sanctifies makes men holy, and those who are sanctified all have one Father. And for this reason, he's not ashamed 
to call them brethren. Isn't that good news that Jesus is not ashamed of us? We're his brothers and his sisters. And God's making us one with one another and with him. We're part of his family. He's making us holy. He has sanctified us and is sanctifying us. He's not ashamed of us. Man, I love that. Glory is God's gift to us. It comes from being made in his image. It's our birthright. And when we allow shame to redefine us, we are guilty of rejecting our birthright. We're despising our God-given glory. We need to guard this glory and not any, let anything mar it or steal it. Jesus prayed in John 17, The glory which you, Father, have given me, I have given to them. Jesus has given us glory. So practically, how do we get set free from shame? This is still in your notes. First, ask the Holy Spirit to show you the cause of your shame. Is it personal sin? The sin of someone against you? Hurtful words spoken to you or about you? Unmet needs? Lack of parental blessing? So all that's explained on the other side of your paper. These hurtful words or the sin of someone against you it just reminds me of when I was a youth pastor in South Africa and there was a, a, a girl that came to me and she was crying and crying and she said, I'm the older of two sisters and my mother loves my young sister and doesn't like me at all. She will push me around. If I go to sit on her lap, she pushes me off of her lap. She'll hold my sister for long periods of time we both made her Mother's Day cards. She tore mine up and threw it in the trash. And she said, I'm, I'm always coming up short, and I am so ashamed. I feel like no one will ever love me. If my mother can't love me, who can love me? So sin that someone else does against us can cause us shame. Abused children often feel ashamed because they're being abused. Obviously, they're not loved. They're being rejected, and so that causes them shame. Number two, confess, repent, and forgive. So that's confess the sin you are guilty of, if your sin brought the shame upon you. Repent of any behaviors that are a reaction to being shamed, like bitterness, anger. Forgive others for their rejection or abuse of you. And I, then I'd like for us to turn to 1 Corinthians 6. This is such a key passage. You will use this when you're counseling others in this area. People that are stuck in shame because of their sin. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. We're going to pick it up in the middle of the verse, 9b. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Man, that's one of your best verses to use when you counsel people. You were these, but you've been washed. He didn't say you've never sinned or you never did anything that terrible. He said, man, you were the worst of the worst. You did all these things, but you were washed, sanctified, 
justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So that's part of our freedom is asking the Lord and receiving from the Lord the washing, the sanctifying, the justifying in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Number three, ask God to remove shame from your soul. Just ask Him, Lord, would you uproot the shame from my soul? Lord, would you heal my emotions? Cleanse the memories that are connected to the shame. Ask Him to meet your needs for love and affirmation, to give you His parental blessing, which He always wants to do. He's the Father of all flesh. He is our Father. He will give all of us the parental blessing that we want. And then cancel the power of hurtful words and their effects on you. And you just do that verbally. I cancel the words that became curses to me. I cancel them off of me in the name of Jesus. And then renew your mind in God's word. It took time for you to develop the shame patterns and it may take time for you to walk in freedom from shame and its behaviors. But renewing your mind in the word is a big key. It's a big part of it. And then cultivate intimacy with God the Father because it's His love that is healing. You need to have an intimate relationship with Him, receive His parental blessing, and you will go from healing to more healing to more healing to more healing. Now turn with me to John chapter 7. John 7, we're going to read verses 37 to 39. John 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this is God's will for us, that we drink of Jesus. It's it's a continuous present tense. Whoever thirsts, let him come to me and keep coming to me and keep coming to me and drinking of me and drinking of me and drinking of me. He who believes in me and continues to believe in me As the scripture says, out of his innermost being, out of his heart, out of his belly, I think it said in Old King James, will flow rivers of living water. This is more than salvation because in John 4, Jesus talked about a fountain of living water springing up to eternal life. That is salvation. This overflow of living water is when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and empowers us to walk in a whole new way with the Lord. So there's this overflow And my point is in this, that if we do not allow the Lord to heal the wounds in our hearts and to heal our brokenness and to free us from shame, then that water that comes out of us is not going to be just living water and giving life everywhere it goes. It's going to be contaminated. We're going to be serving liquid woundedness because we've not invited the Lord into the deepest places of our souls to heal us and set us free. His desire for all of us is that out of our innermost being, we drink of Him, we have relationship with Him, we're in fellowship with Him, we're in the Scriptures. He's filling us with His Spirit, and we pray, Lord, 
baptize me with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we feel the fire of God in us. And there's that overflow of the Spirit. And then the, everyone around us is affected by that. But they will also be affected if the living water contains bitterness and anger and prejudice and unforgiveness, negativity. We've got to be clean on the inside so that the living water is fresh and life-giving as it comes through us. Jesus said, I'll remind you, Jesus said in, in John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In Matthew 5, 14, he said, you are the light of the world. So Jesus called us to be what he himself is. I'm the light of the world. You're the light of the world. You guys are reflecting me. You're part of my body. You are to shine into the darkness around you just as I, the light of the world, shine into the darkness around me. It's possible for us to dispense his glory everywhere we go, but it's not possible if we are bent over with shame and we're living in deliberate sin. Hebrews 12 verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every weight in the sin that easily trips us up. Shame is a weight. It's not necessarily that you're in sin if you have shame, but it is a weight that will keep you bent over and unable to be everything God wants you to be. And then one last verse, let's go to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60. This is actually written to Zion. But we're grafted in <clears throat> to the Jewish root. And so we claim the scriptures that are written for Zion as well without taking away that they're still meant for modern Israel today. Isaiah 61 and 2, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So we're seeing this right now. Darkness is covering the earth. Deep darkness is covering the people. But God has an agenda for us. His glory will be seen upon us. His light will arise upon us. Throw back, break free of all shame, all guilt, all sin, so that his glory can be seen upon you. So what is glory? In Hebrew, it's the word kavod, and it means honor, splendor, power, authority, dignity, and excellency. That's what the Lord wants to be seen upon us, his glory, his excellency, his splendor, his power, his authority. It's a promise to us if we will arise. Arise out of our bent-up shape. Arise out of our sin, out of our shame, out of our brokenness. We throw off the shackles of the enemy that wants to hold us back and keep us from fulfilling our destiny in the Lord and shine for His glory. I've got a prayer there, and I'd like for us to pray through that. This is the kind of prayer that you would pray with someone if you're counseling them in this area. We're all disciples and we all want to be disciple makers and so there are times that we counsel people and pray with them. So how about just reading it with me? 
out loud. Father, thank you for choosing me and sharing your holiness with me. Please set me free from the stronghold of shame. I forgive those who have shamed me. Okay, let's pause. Think of those who have shamed you and forgive them. Okay, let's move on. Forgive me for turning the glory you have given me into shame by walking in shame in one of these ways. So glance at that list on the other side of your sheet and repent of anything that you see is relevant to your life. Okay, let's keep reading and praying. <clears throat> Forgive me for not believing what you say about me. I apologize for selling my birthright. I renounce shame and refuse to live under it any longer. I break its power over me by the blood of Jesus. I reject it with all of its debilitating effects in Jesus' name. I will not walk bent over, but will stand tall and confident in who you say I am, washed, sanctified, justified, chosen, and beloved. I am your child, seated in heavenly places with you. I receive Psalm 21, 5 through 7 for myself. My glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon me, for you have made me most blessed forever. You have made me exceedingly glad with your presence, for I trust in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, I shall not be moved. Amen. Amen. Let me just uh, pray for all of us. Lord, thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus. I pray a cleansing of that blood over every one of us in the hearing of my voice. Would you wash over our spirits with your blood? Would you wash over our souls with your blood? Would you wash over our bodies with your blood? And would you set us apart? Would you consecrate us again for yourself? Lord, would you deliver us from all shame and all of its behaviors. Lord, we know we, we can pray against the shame, but we have to work with you to be free of the behavior. And I pray for all of us that we'll walk free of being people-pleasing and self-conscious and self-pitying and not meeting our own needs because we don't think we're important enough to meet our needs. All of those seven that we looked at, Lord, would you help us to change? 
transform us into the image of Jesus, that we can walk tall in your glory. Lord, you've called us to carry your glory. You've called us to be the light of the world. I pray we'd be faithful in that. We would rise to what you've called us to do, what you've called us to be, in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the last verse on your page, Psalm 8, 4, and 5, What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. God has crowned us with glory and honor. How dare we walk with our heads down? We can walk tall because of Jesus. God bless you all. Let's go worship the Lamb of Glory. Thanks for being here today.